there, true believers, and welcome to Simply Devotion, the podcast that is all about seeking Jesus on deeper theological levels, because He is worthy of all of our devotion. Welcome back to another episode of Simply Devotion, where we are looking at the historical Jesus, his culture, his time, and his major events of life. Today's event in Jesus' life is also one of the most important dates in the Christian calendar. I am here again with our professional educator, Jonathan Martin. Jonathan! to be here. Ah, yeah. I'm so glad you like to be here because that's exactly what's on my mind today. I wanted to ask you just sort of a question out the door. You have been podcasting here for a while on Simply Devotion. We have been recording. We're in the recording phase. Do you feel like a professional podcaster yet? I don't know. I don't know if I feel like a professional podcaster, but I am starting to get used to doing this. Uh, I'm starting to kind of get into the groove and understanding how to make these the best possible episodes we can make. That's right. We want to keep providing high quality theological training and teaching on our podcast so if you all would do us a favor and just drop by itunes give us a five-star rating uh, we'll take a four but we prefer a five and if you would subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on that would make us feel like christmas oh by the way that's what we're going to talk about everybody likes Christmas, no matter what time of the year it is. Absolutely. Christmas is the time where everyone is happy and jolly, and it is the most wonderful time of year. Right. And today's episode is called What Your Pastor Never Told You About the Birth of Jesus. So when we think about the birth of Jesus, we think about Lots of things. What are, you know, like snowmen, mocha, hot chocolate, Christmas trees, presents, Christmas trees, um, stockings, reindeer, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Oh, John, don't start singing, man. <laughs> I won't. I won't. Because then, then our audience really wouldn't like me. <laughs> right. Right. But really, you know, when we're talking about Christmas, we're, the word Christmas is just Christ mass. Early Christians had this idea that they called their engagement in a corporate level a mass. And we're just talking really about the birth of Christ. Not really in reference to a particular holiday, but we're talking about the historical facts around the birth of Jesus. Since we already know that Jesus is an undeniable historical figure in history, not just that pastors and religious educators and, you know, churches believe that Jesus was a real person, but scholars, as we've talked about in previous episodes, also accept the existence of a historical Jesus. And so everyone who is a historical being has a birth story. That's right. Everyone's been born. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Everyone was born. But it seems to me when we talk about the birth of Jesus, sometimes there's a tendency just to rush to, you know, the way in a manger, the silent night, the angel appearing to the shepherd and their flocks. But there's a lot about Christmas. We just never get around 
the talking about. That's sort of the idea today. I mean, you're listening to this and it is not Christmas time, but the idea is that there's a lot that's imperative to understanding the historical Jesus. And so today we'll be looking at some things that perhaps you haven't heard in sermons, perhaps doesn't get covered often enough from the pulpit. Perhaps you've never read about the culture of Jewish marriages at Second Temple Judaism. We're going to, I think, cover some new ground for most people. But first, let's start with the basics. We have crossovers with the story of the birth of John the Baptist, which we have already talked about. And it kind of makes sense that we talked about John's birth before we talked about the birth of Jesus because John is older. Yes. And we talked about how there's like some crossover in their stories. You know, like the angel Gabriel comes to both parents or or like John's parents and Jesus' parents Mm -hmm. and pre-announces their birth. But in John's case, he appears to John's father and in Jesus' case, he appears to Jesus' mother. Yes. But that's kind of the end of the similarity. John, I like to preach about the birth of Jesus. And I try like every Christmas when we, you know, it's the time that churches are thinking about this. I try to preach about this. And I try to make this a story about how to act honorably towards mm. women when people are saying bad things about them. Okay. And because like Joseph has the opportunity to think the worst about Mary. Yes. I mean, I mean, how would anybody think, right? If the person that you are engaged to came up to you one day and said, by the way, I'm, pregnant and God's the dad yeah I mean it's hard not to even laugh just hearing that now right it's like yeah right yeah I mean so you know it's pretty understandable how Joseph was confused by this um, and maybe you know a little disappointed as well yeah, I would imagine so. And and so important to understand in this story is that even though Mary and Joseph have not been married, the Jewish system of marriage at Second Temple Judaism is different than our system of marriage today. Yes. Particularly around the idea of engagement. That is very correct. So tell, yeah, tell us about that. When when during the time of Jesus in first century Palestine, it was normal it was customary for the dads of two households to arrange the marriage between their children. So one dad has a daughter, another dad has a son, and they would arrange these marriages between their children. The dad with the son would uh, pay a dowry uh, for the, the bride of his son. And when that dowry was paid, the two young children, and the reality was that people got married pretty young during the time of Jesus, um, probably shortly after puberty is, is when they were getting married. So they were young teenagers. Right. Um, traditionally. Right. And so uh, when the dowry was paid, they were betrothed right? It was official. They were what we would call 
engaged. But the difference between their engagement and our engagement, aside from the whole arranged marriage thing, was that two people who were betrothed to each other for all intents and purposes, under the law, they were considered officially married. Now, the daughter may not be living with her husband yet. She may still be living with her dad. And there may be a time period between the betrothal and the marriage. Um, it could be months. It could be years. Right between right. the betrothal and the marriage. Yep. Uh, but during, but once that dowry is paid and the agreement is made, it's legal. They're, it's legal. They are married. And the only way to get out of a betrothal is a divorce. Right, right. And absolutely, we are tracking 100%. At the time of a betrothal or what we would call an engagement in the Jewish wedding system of second temple would be the idea that for this marriage to be dissolved it requires the same criteria that Moses set up in Torah including the written um, documentation of a divorce a certificate of divorce that would have to have attached to that certificate a verifiable reason for the divorce. It's not a no-fault divorce state. <laughs> no. And generally uh, speaking, uh, the only good reason would be marital unfaithfulness, adultery. Right. Now, another point that I just want to bring out about the Second Temple Jewish wedding system you mentioned that even though they're engaged you might still be living that she may still be living with the dad mm -hmm. and the wedding itself the ceremony involved with the wedding involves the consummation of the union and that happens at a particular place in most second temple weddings the groom goes and he builds a place. He builds a place, a room, if you will, where that first intimate exchange solidifying the marriage, not just the betrothment, happens. We, we find the parallel for understanding this in John 14 and also in Matthew 24. This idea that the bridegroom goes and builds a room or house and he's going to come back to get you, right? To bring you where? To the father's house. You build a room onto your father's house. And after the ceremony, you consummate there. You, you may live there for some time. Again, these are impoverished communities. And eventually you get your own house. But this is where the consummation happens. And some of this has to do with purity. The way to ensure that a couple who are legally betrothed are not fudging about the nature of their relationship is that once they're betrothed, they're separated. Mm -hmm. And the man goes to build the room on his father's house. And when that's done, he comes and gets her and brings her to the father's house for the wedding. So if the marriage of Mary and Joseph is unfolding in the way that is typical 
for Jewish weddings at that time in the way that Jesus explains weddings as happening in places like Matthew 24 and John 14, then Mary becomes pregnant while Joseph is away. Hmm. And, and by the way, that's a really good understanding for our listeners to understand for the skeptics who they will come across who will say, well, yeah, if I got my lady pregnant and I don't want to get in trouble, I will just say, God did it. <laughs> right? Like, you could say what you want about Mary, and Mary's the one who's going to take the brunt of this. Oh, for sure. But Joseph, if all things are equal as to the way weddings were supposed to happen, Joseph wasn't even around to to be a part of any nefarious nocturnal activities. Right. <laughs> so it definitely wasn't Joseph. Right, right. Joseph was off building the honeymoon suite. Right. So this is why most shame falls on Mary if something nefarious happened. Now, we as Christians, of course, believe this is a virgin birth. Right. But when I preach this, I like to make this clear because think about what this is like for Joseph. Yeah. There's really no other way to look at it from Joseph's perspective than, you know, Mary messed up. She violated. She didn't mess up in the way, you know, we we would think about in a modern point of view from Joseph's point, like in a modern point of view, if we just get secular here for a moment, Mm -hmm. messing up is I forgot to take the pill. (laughs) Right. Right. Like, like from Joseph's point of view, if he doesn't buy the Gabriel story, Mary violated the union before the union happened. Correct. That would be that would be Joseph's perspective, right? She violated the terms of, of their engagement, right? They were betrothed. They were for each other, you know, and now clearly there's some sort of triangle here from Joseph's perspective. And so according to the Torah, the law, Joseph has grounds to dismantle this relationship. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, tell me, John. This would be considered adultery. Mm-hmm. And because she committed adultery, he could put that on a certificate of divorce. Right. Right. And, and publicly separate himself from her. And then what would happen to her? Well, according to Leviticus 20, verse 10, the Levitical law tells us that the official punishment for adultery was death. Which is why when I preach this once a year, trying to find a creative angle every year to get to this point, I like to point out what high level of integrity Joseph has. Because the scriptures say he sought to deal with her quietly. In other words, he didn't want to shame her and he didn't want to write the certificate of divorce. He didn't want to exercise his rights against her. Even though, is it fair to say he probably doubted the story in the beginning? For sure. I mean, I... He wanted to, to, you know, the Bible tells us that he wanted to put her away, you know, quietly. Right. You know, um, he did want to separate, it seems. Right, right. But he's not so, wanting to make a public spectacle and put her life at danger. Correct. Right. He obviously cares enough for her that he doesn't want her dead. But at the same time, he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he wants to be married. Right, because like just to get real with you in the church, if two engaged couples do this 
and one in the and the woman shows up pregnant, the man gonna shame her, accuse her, run away from her, and say, I don't know who she'd been with. Right. I mean, that's my experience, Pastor. It's it just always floors me, John. I know this is a sidebar here, but it always floors me that in the church, when there's an illegitimate pregnancy before marriage, it's like suddenly we we don't even know who she was engaged to. We don't even know who her, who her boyfriend was. It's like we know she's in, she's pregnant, but who did it? Well, that's a different question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know? Like, it's not like we didn't see who she was hanging out with at potluck last week. You know? Like, it's just <laughs> but Joseph seems to exercise an extreme level of integrity in this situation Mm -hmm. and i just always find that heartwarming he he does truly love this woman uh no doubt he would have as you said publicly shamed her but he didn't so there's this there's clearly this concern this care for her um but he's also you know kind of disappointed as well Mm -hmm. um and so he was planning to kind of separate from her but in a quiet way so god had to step in and and the bible tells us that uh, that an angel appears to uh to joseph and basically tells him don't worry the story is true so you can go <laughs> ahead and marry her right right <laughs> <laughs> so God God still had to step in because again the story is just absolutely far-fetched. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. I mean even for Christians today if somebody were to show up and say mm-hmm. the same thing that Mary is saying, you know, we would not believe It's a ludicrous story. <laughs> it is an absolutely ludicrous story. It it just it's a story that doesn't make any sense. So God had to step in and God had to personally set the record straight and tell Joseph her story's true. Right. He's going to give birth to a son and it's because the Holy Spirit did it. I can only imagine still the burden on both of them. Yeah, because even though Right. Even though, you know, Mary knows the truth and Joseph knows the truth, ain't nobody else believing it. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> nobody else is going to believe the story. So, right. So ultimately, we have a wedding now. <laughs> Will we call it a shotgun wedding? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> But it's not Joseph's kid, right? <laughs> well, it is. He's the I mean, adoptive it, parent. Yeah, he chooses to acknowledge, right? He he chooses uh, and and chooses to be a father to this child. Everybody knows that something happened, and Ooh, God right. didn't uh, God didn't send an angel to everybody in Nazareth to set that story straight. Oh, there's so many great lessons here, right? Yeah. Sometimes we carry shame that doesn't belong to us for this for the betterment in the sake of others. Yes. Yeah, because Mary and Joseph live with the presumption of guilt. Right. I, I even hear shades of this when people say about Jesus, isn't he Joseph's son? Like I, I <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Particularly when they're saying that in Nazareth, isn't this you know, isn't this that kid? <laughs> Joseph's son. Exactly. Right? I'm doing air quotes here, right? Joseph's son. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, and it also explains maybe some of the shame that we also pick up in the Gospels that Jesus' brothers have towards him. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's good for our listeners to understand Jesus had brothers. And we could get into debates about that, John, but 
let's just say Jesus had brothers. If they're older brothers from Joseph from a previous marriage, as some people believe, or if they are future children of Mary and Joseph, as other people believe. And largely, which one of those you believe depends on if you're a Catholic or a Protestant. <laughs> okay. True. Yes. Right? But Jesus has brothers. Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, mm-hmm. is his brother. James, who writes mm-hmm. the epistle of James, is his brother. And neither of them believe his ministry until after the resurrection. Yeah. Right? Right. And, and Jesus doesn't have warm and fuzzy things to say about his brothers either. You know, they're like, hey, your brothers and, and, your, and, your, and your family are outside. He's like, ah, you know, who is my brother? Yeah. Well, I mean, that story is almost like they're trying to have an intervention. They're just right. trying to like shoo Jesus away and be like, come on, Jesus, let's come with us. Right. Time to step you, you away. Ca- you've caused enough family embarrassment, right? Right. Like the mere fact that you exist has been a perpetual embarrassment to our family. And now you're going around saying you're the son of God and that you're going to overthrow the Romans. Come on, dude. You need to go back to Nazareth and settle down. Mm. Right? Yeah. Right. And and they could you know, just imagine growing up as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. The I teach I teach middle schoolers. I know how mean kids can be. So, Dude, ima- you know, they might be listening. Yeah, uh, they might be. <laughs> but I know how mean and they know how mean they can be. I can almost hear. Jesus's brothers bringing it up, throwing it in his face and saying, you're not my real brother anyway. Right. 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 I'm not even sure we're, we're related. Well, uh, another piece of evidence I would put forth to this view would be that at the cross, Mary is there. Mm-hmm. But Jesus' brothers are not. Right. And Jesus points to John, his disciple, the youngest disciple, the youngest John, and says, behold your mother, and to Mary, behold your son. It's almost like Jesus is handing Mary over to his care and him over to Mary's care because, like, his brothers don't even show up to take care of his mom. Yeah. Right? So there, you know, when we talk about Christmas, we we talk about the birth of Jesus. It's always like this, like away in the manger stuff, right? It's like, 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 like this feel good family moments. But but Jesus' birth, yeah, is messy, controversial, and complex, and and, and full of trauma for everyone. True, you're absolutely right, and. Somehow they end up in Bethlehem. What, what, what's, what's that all about? Well, according to the gospel narrative, there's a census that goes out and everybody had to return to the uh, land of their father, right? The, the, the city of their father. And they had to register mm-hmm. uh, for that census. And so the Bible tells us that while... Uh, Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem mm-hmm. because that was where Joseph and his lineage came from. Mm-hmm. So while they were in Bethlehem, uh, Mary gave birth to a son and they named him Jesus. God saves. God saves. Yeshua. Uh, it's a great time to, to discuss that briefly. All right. As a sidebar, and, and that's kind of the reason we have these conversations, John, for all the theology that we pack around them, right? Yeshua is whose name? What is Yeshua? Most names in Hebrew, they have meaning, right? Um, and so Yeshua is composed of two words, Yah, which comes from Yahweh, and uh, Shua, right, to, to save, Right, so Yeshua, God Yahweh saves. saves. Yahweh right? saves. Right, Yahweh it's not just saves. God 
saves. Right. It's Yahweh. It's using the the covenantal name of God so that there is no confusion. Right, right. In this a is world not, where there's not Baal stuff. saves. This is not, you know, um, you know, Ashra saves. This is Yah. This is yeah. Yahweh saves. God, Yah. Yeshua. Exactly. Which in English is Joshua. Right. Right. And the parallel I would like to make at this point is Joshua from the Old Testament who takes over from Moses. How does he save? He brings the people into the promised land. Hmm. And this Yeshua, this Joshua brings all who believe back to the father, to the ultimate promised land. Now, I have to ask you some questions between the two of us. I don't mind admitting you're probably better at biblical languages than I am. You, you're looking at me like you have doubt, but I don't have any doubt in that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess now you've made me the official language expert. <laughs> sure. Sure. Because we don't have Daniel Royal with us today. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... If Jesus' birth name is Yeshua, and if that literally means Joshua, why do we call him Jesus? And is there anything to all that, and does it matter? Well, uh, the the reason we call him uh, Jesus is because of language, right? Yeshua doesn't sound like it doesn't is not exactly like Joshua. Right. So right. when when they translated the name Yeshua into English in the Old Testament, right, they they said, OK, Yeshua, Yeshua, Joshua. Right. We're going right. to spell it J-O-S-H-U-A. Right. Transliterate. Right. It's a tr that's called transliteration. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to make the English word or the language that they're translating into sound like the original language. Mm -hmm. So in the New Testament, it's not written in Hebrew. And so, oh, right. Okay. And so in the New Testament, uh, it's written in Greek. And so they're taking Jesus's name, mm -hmm. Yeshua, and they're trying to translate that, transliterate that into Greek. Okay. And so when they spell it out, they spell it out as Jesus. 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 And then, and so in the New Testament, when they're translating it from the Greek, they're not translating Yeshua or transliterating Yeshua. They are transliterating Jesus. Jesus. So we get Jesus. English for Jesus is Jesus. Mm -hmm. English for Yeshua is Joshua. Right. In the whole reason I asked you this question, John, is to clear up a common misconception that is growing out there. And uh, there's a whole movement called the Hebrews Root Movement. Uh, they're really popular on TikTok, actually, right now. Um, and they're in other places where they insist that there's something wrong with saying the name Jesus. Hmm. Okay? And that his real name is Yeshua and you know because you know the Bible says that there's no other name of which man should be saved the, so they want to get he, the name right they want to get the name right and they're mm -hmm. like you know if if um, if you're saying Jesus you know you're saying some pagan um, some paganized version of the name of, of of the son of God so you have to say the Hebrew name but the reason we're having this roundabout conversation is because it's not just about transliteration. The literal writers of the gospel didn't write the name down in Aramaic or Hebrew. Nope. They wrote the Greek version of Jesus. Yes. So the gospel writers weren't too hung up on pronunciation. 
thank you. Right? So, so, so to dispel the idea that you have to call him Joshua or Yeshua and you can't call him Jesus. And John, they go weird places. They're like, Jesus, we think that might be like uh, Zeus. That's <laughs> where so they go with this. <laughs> you know? But, but the point we would make is it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Paul, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Jude, his brother, <laughs> mm-hmm. and James's brother, who used the Greek and come out with Jesus when we transliterated to English over Yahshua to Joshua. That's right. So we're in Bethlehem. He is born there. He is born on a farm, apparently. Is this true? Well, uh, the Bible tells us that when he was born, he was laid in a manger with swaddling cloths because there was no room for them. Uh, there was no room for them in the inn, I think is what the King James Version says. Some other translations say there was just no room for them. Uh, there was no like guest room or, or something for them. Uh, but there was no place. There was no formal room for them. And so they kind of uh, got stuck in a place where where animals were. <laughs> okay, so it's not necessarily a barnyard. It's that there's no room in the part of the house where people normally sleep. So they're in the section of the estate of whatever place they're at, where the animals are kept. Exactly. And um, I don't know, I, I've, I've heard it described in different ways by different people. Um, you know, some people would say it was kind of like a cave. Um, and so, you know, so it, this was something that was more separated from the house and, you know, it was like a cave where, where the animals kind of sought shelter or whatever. Um, some people have described it as well, you know, uh, a lot of times the houses were kind of like two stories and they lived on the top story. And then, uh, in the first story of the house is where they kept you know, animals, you know, especially if they owned a donkey or something, they would live on the, on the first story. Um, What we do know is that in the Middle Eastern culture, that hospitality is a big deal. Yep. So the idea that they would knock on someone's door and be like, Hey, (laughs) You know, my wife's pregnant. She's about to give birth. We need a place to stay. And they're going to be like, sorry, get out of here. Uh, chances are that they would have tried to figure out a place to put them. Instead of turning them away, that they would have figured out a place to put them. And so it's very likely uh, that wherever they ended up was somebody trying to be as hospitable as possible. Yeah. Of course, Bethlehem is being overrun. A lot of people are going there for the census. So their their rooms are scarce. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that they would have just been sent away and saying, sorry, that's an American view, right? Right. That's what we would yep. do as Americans. If somebody knocked on our door and says, my wife is pregnant, we need a place to stay. You're going to be like, I think there's a Motel 6 down the road. Try them. That's what we right. would do as Americans. In the Middle East, that's not the case, right? Because hospitality was super important. They would have found a place, even if that meant where the animals were. Right. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I covered a lot of this in, in uh, season one. And I, I actually have some diagrams in show notes from season one that I'll put in the show notes for this episode, which show possible house configurations exactly as you described them, Jonathan. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. So they have this baby and it's laid in a manger and, you know, the shepherds announced its birth and, and then like the Magi show up, right? And the Magi are like bringing these gifts, right? Mm, not really. Well, yeah, yeah, that's how it happens on every Christmas special. Well, they, they do that because it's easier that way. You know, when the church is putting on the little nativity skit, you know, they don't want to actually say two years later and then the Magi show up. Wait, are you um, telling me that the Magi were two years late to the Messiah's birthday party? 
we know two things. We know that they did not present themselves to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus while Jesus was in a manger. The Bible tells us specifically that they were in a house. So it didn't happen the night that Jesus was born. Mm -hmm. And we also know that it could have taken up to two years for them to show up. And the reason we know that is because when the Magi showed up in Bethlehem, they were obviously looking for royalty. So they show up to Herod, who's the king. Uh, he's one of the tetrarchs of, uh, of Judea. Mm-hmm. And so they show up to Herod and they tell him, hey, we're here. We've got these gifts for the newborn king. And of course, Herod's like, what do you mean, newborn king? And they tell him, we saw his star. And of course, Herod is a little confused. First to his scholars, the scholars tell, the, tell him, no, the Messiah, is supposed to be, or, or, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so he tells the wise men, he says, all right, go find this baby. And when you find him, come and tell me so that I can worship him. Of course, he had no intentions of doing that. He had intentions of getting rid of anybody that would challenge his position as king. And so when the Magi were directed elsewhere, again, by an angel who mm-hmm. intervenes, uh, they didn't go back to Herod. Herod realized that he got ghosted. And, <laughs> uh, and then he decides that he's going to kill all children two years and younger. Because he's tracking the timeline. He's tracking the timeline, right? He knows that these guys show up because they saw the star. I'm sure he asked them questions Mm -hmm. about when that star appeared. I'm sure he's going back and having his own people look at the prophecies and try to figure out the timeline Mm -hmm. of when the Messiah was supposed to be showing up. And he narrowed it down to two years. And so he's like, okay, anybody that is two years or younger, we're going to kill because I can't have a rifle. And so we know that it could have taken, because of that, we know that it, it could have taken the Magi up to two years before they actually showed up in, in Bethlehem. So, yeah, that changes our Christmas plays. It does. And I am so adamant about getting it accurate that when I was pastoring and I wrote a Christmas play for our Christmas program, I specifically separated the arrival of the Magi from the manger scene. Can't you just have a kid come out with a giant poster board saying two years later? (laughs) Well, you just go from a newborn baby to a two-year-old kid. You could have a toddler, right? Exactly. So they bring some gifts. And and what gifts did they bring? They brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. My my kid randomly came up to me um, yesterday and is like, what's frankincense? (laughs) Yes. I I downloaded the Bible app for him, so he's listening to everything now. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so frankincense, myrrh, and gold? That's correct. These are pretty expensive gifts. Like frankincense is... Yeah, it's used for incense. So okay. those of you in your audience who are familiar with incense, you know, it's something that you kind of light up and and you kind of let it burn so that you have a nice smell in your environment. Gold, we know what that is. Right, very valuable metal. Myrrh seems to be the murky one of the three. (laughs) Myrrh um, was used, again, for its smell because it was a a fragrant item. Mm -hmm. Um, And you would use it kind of like a, a, a perfume. Okay, it was or or a cologne or a perfume. It it was dissolved in a liquid, and you would use it traditionally in the time of Jesus. It was used to bury people, um, because 
Uh, That's during, a warm gift to give a child. Yeah. Well, I'll go back to that, but I, I, I want to finish my thought that it was used because of the bodies when somebody dies and it took some time to prepare that body for burial. There's no refrigeration. So those bodies would decay very quickly and there would you would start smelling something. And so they would use myrrh to pour over the body so that it wouldn't smell as bad as they're preparing it for burial. But yes, that's kind of a weird gift to give a child because you're supposed to be celebrating their birthday, not their death day. Yeah, it's kind of like at a baby shower handing out a casket. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, it just it doesn't it doesn't fit in with the occasion, and so the question is, why did they give it to him? Well, I've heard two two theories, and I'll get your opinion on the theories. One is, dum 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 dum, foreshadow. Yeah, right. Like the foreshadowing, and there's all the symbolism. And right. the other theory I've heard is that every one of these gifts are highly expensive gifts. And we know that Herod is seeking and killing toddlers to try to find the baby Jesus. And we know that the angel, perhaps Gabriel, appears again and warns Joseph to get up and take Jesus to Egypt. And so I've heard the theory that these gifts are foreshadowing stages of Jesus' ministry or or mission. And then I've heard the theory that these gifts were probably how Joseph liquidated cash to be able to get to Egypt and set up life in Egypt to protect the baby Jesus. Mm-hmm. They both sound pretty interesting theories. What's your take on that? I, I, think, I think it's a combination of, of the two. I think the gold was liquidated uh, to help them get to Egypt Mm -hmm. um, and it provide them a way to live Mm -hmm. at least for a time while they were hiding from King Herod. Uh, But at the same time, Magi, another way of, of referring to the Magi is wise men. These guys are wise people. They, there was no way that they knew that King Herod was going to try and kill Jesus. Mm. So because they didn't know, I mean, if they would have known that, they wouldn't have gone to Herod in the first place. So they couldn't have foreshadowed that mm. Jesus was mm. going to need expensive items that they can sell at a pawn shop and figure out how to get to, to Egypt. So I do think that there was symbolism in the gifts that they're giving him. These guys are wise men. And I don't know, and I don't think we have a whole lot of time to get into this, but I think that chances are they come from the Babylonian or Persian region. Definitely, definitely. Again, they're probably even descendants of Shem if we go back far enough. They're okay. the, but they, they are not from the north. They're not from the south. They're from the east. Yes. And, and so they're from the, the Babylonian or Persian, the, the, the region where those kingdoms were set up, Babylonian, the Babylon mm-hmm. and Persia. And, and in the book of Daniel, we have references to wise men. And of course, Daniel takes place in the time of Babylon, the time of Persia. The land and of so- Ur, the land, uh, Shinar, Plains, this yes. is all the East, Assyria, Iraq, Iran, all that area is always referred to the East throughout the Old Testament. Exactly. And so it's not unlikely that these wise men had access, number one, to Jewish scripture and more specifically to the writings of Daniel himself. Daniel was one of the wise men in that area at one time. So it is possible that they had access Definitely to the writings of Daniel, but maybe even the writings of 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 the Old Testament scripture itself. Mm. And this would have been part of their library. 
Yes, they had books from yeah. other other places and things, mm-hmm. but it's not un, it wouldn't be unlikely for them mm-hmm. to have access to these writings in their library. So when they see a star arise, they recognize that this is an important thing. And then as they try to research and figure out what does this mean, they come across Micah 5 2. The Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem Ephrathah. And so and so it's not unlike it's not unlikely that they would have come across the, the the prophecies of Daniel, which actually pinpoint the time in which the Messiah is supposed to show up. And exactly. so they're putting all of this together. They see the star and they see they see the writings of Daniel and say, no, this is somebody important. For the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And so they begin their journey westward until they reach Judea. And so I think if they were smart enough to understand the star from the book of Micah and the timing from the book of Daniel, then they were also probably smart enough to recognize that Jesus was a king, so we got to give him mm-hmm. gold. And Jesus was a priest. Mm-hmm. So we got to give him frankincense. Right. right. And that he will be a sacrifice and will Mm. die like a lamb. And so we got to give him myrrh. So they probably do liquidate the gold. They they may have liquidated it all, despite the symbolism. True. Somehow they finance the trip to Egypt and they hide out in Egypt. And I always like to point out to people that Jesus' formative year are in Africa, which mm-hmm. is something, again, as Americans and Westerners and Europeans, where Christianity, at least Christianity in the West, develops, we completely delete that part of the story. Mm-hmm. But on the timeline you've given us, Jesus is going to Africa at about age two or three. Right. This is a really important formative time in life. We know that he stays in Africa until Herod dies. Now, we know they come back when Herod dies, but we don't know how quickly they come back when Herod dies. We don't know Herod dies and they return. Did they stay five years? Did they stay three years? We just know that they came back after Herod dies. Right. And the next place we see Jesus is in the temple at 12. Now, I, I'm not implying he stayed between 3 and 12 or 2 and 12 because there would be no reason to stay that long. The reason you stayed was to avoid the king. But there's mm-hmm. also no reason to believe as soon as the king died, he came back. They, right. they, they got up and moved the whole family over there. The only point I want to make is Jesus spent the time of life where he was learning to walk and run and play and socialize and speak and so forth in Africa. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like a nice inclusive point to make because of how westernized we've made Christianity. Right. And in episode one of this season, we actually talked about the languages that Jesus probably knew. And, you know, we talked about Hebrew, Aramaic, and maybe even Greek. But maybe we need to add the Egyptian language to that as well. If he spent some time there. Interesting. It's, it's very likely that Jesus would have, may have learned uh, Egyptian. December 25, what are your thoughts? I love Christmas. Every year I have a Christmas tree in my house and I give gifts and I'm glad to have two weeks off of school. But it's not likely the date that Jesus was born. I will say this. I don't know when Jesus was born. I don't know that he wasn't born on December 25th. And there are some traditions that come actually from the Byzantine church that suggests that it could have been December, although traditionally we believe not so. But the Byzantine church evidently believes Mary became pregnant in the spring. I don't know why they believe that. They parallel it with the cross. I don't know why. But then gestation period would put it in that area of the year. All right. 
So that was new to me. I, I found that out last year at Christmas time when I was sort of doing research about it. Mm-hmm. But we really don't know. And I really don't think it matters. What do you think? I, I, I really don't think it matters. Um, I, I think, you know, personally, I think it was likely Jesus was born in the springtime. Uh, based on the information that, that I know. Um, when I look at the text, I see that, uh, first of all, what, what's happening when Jesus, the night Jesus is born, uh, we have angels appearing to shepherds who are out in the field uh, at nighttime. Now, a lot of times we think of Israel as being just hot. Right. All all the time, all year round. But actually, there's a summertime and there's a wintertime in Israel. And if you're out at night and you're out feeding your sheep, Mm -hmm. this has to be a time where grass is growing in the fields. Mm -hmm. And it has to be a time where it's at least warm enough. Mm-hmm. that you're not you're not super cold right out in the right. out of the fields and so it just seems to me that this is springtime summertime that Jesus uh would have been born just by based on what what the shepherds were doing at the time the night that Jesus was born right we might also point to travel right they're they're traveling how are they would you be traveling in a cold time, would you be traveling at night in a cold time? Would you be staying in a manger in a cold time? Right. Well, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, all those are, are important factors to consider. So it doesn't seem like it would have been in the winter time. Uh, so December and, um, you know, maybe if Israel was south of the equator, okay, now we're talking, but Israel's not south of the equator. And so it's it's likely that Jesus was not in the springtime. But I want to go back to what you were saying, Vinny. And that is, does it matter? Right. Like, what's more important? When Jesus was born or that Jesus was born? Because it's not a matter of a day. We don't care. At least I don't care what day he was born. I care that he was born. I care that he was born of a virgin. I care that he was born, as you pointed out, exactly when prophetically the Old Testament, particularly the book of Daniel, indicates he would be. I care that he grew up. It doesn't matter to me how much time he spent in Egypt or when he went back to Nazareth, but he became who he became and he died on a tree. That's it. Right? And that's why it's Christmas of all seasons. And I don't go down the rabbit hole of why we have westernized traditions. And I know there are Christians out there who freak out about Christmas trees and, you know, all those sort of things. I'm just going to point out to you the most important thing Jesus did happened on a tree. That's what the cross was. You have been listening to a podcast produced by simplyvinny.com. Stop by our website, read our blog, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and all that jazzy promotional stuff. But remember, I'm the podcaster that likes to remind you when life throws a monkey wrench at your head. Jesus is still the logo, the reason 
the logic, the word that builds your life back all the way to the kingdom of God. Until next time, God will be blessing you. See you at the next podcast.